0: Let's pray together this morning, God. It is so true. We need you, Lord, um, abundantly and deeply in every aspect of our lives. We need you, God, Lord. We praise you that you see that need. You recognize that we uh, desperately need you in our lives, and you made a way to meet us here. Lord, you sent your Son to embrace us, Lord. To come and meet us and walk among us, God, and eventually die and rise again, so we would never have to be without you. So we would never have to be alone in our need, God. But that so you could be with us in every aspect of it, God. Lord, allow that truth, the abundance of your grace and your mercy, to sink deep within our hearts this morning, Lord. Allow us to overflow with the knowledge that we are deeply loved by you. That you want us, that you chose us, God. And that because of that, we collectively and individually get to be your people. We get to be yours, Lord, above all else in this world. God, I pray this morning that we as your people, Lord, would be drawn towards you that our hearts and our eyes would be open to see the things that you're doing in our lives, Lord. As we sit here, Lord, whether life is full of joy and wonder and abundance, God, or whether there is great need within us, whether there is hardship and struggle and doubt and fear, allow us to recognize that in each one of those, in every moment, Lord, you are there with us. God, as we come together this morning, we recognize that we don't do so alone. Not only are you here with us, Lord, but we are gathered here as your people. As so many others throughout our country, throughout our world, are also gathering, Lord. Today, yesterday, throughout this weekend, Lord, we recognize that we are part of a global church, a global community and body of believers who love you, who are seeking you with their lives, God, we pray for those who are meeting in places in secret, Lord, or are being persecuted for their faith, God. Give them strength and endurance, Lord. Allow us to remember to pray for them, to uplift them towards you, God. We know you're there with them, that you meet them there, Lord. Allow them to remember that and to find the hope and comfort that comes with your presence, God. Lord, we come before you. Eager to hear what you have for us today, God. Eager to see you, to know you deeper, Lord. I pray that as we uh, are here, as we worship you, as we hear your words spoken and preached, God, that you would turn our hearts towards you, Lord. That you would infiltrate every aspect of our lives, our work, our job, our school, whatever it is, Lord. May your word not just live here on Sunday mornings, but out into the world through each of us as we go forth. Father, we pray for Bernard this morning, that you'd give him your words to speak, that your presence would be upon him, Lord, as he comes to share with us, and that we would receive what you have for us this morning. We love you, God, in your good and holy and precious name. Amen. And this morning, as you might have heard last week, uh, for all of Berner's series, we're going to be reading the chapter of Daniel that he is going to be preaching from. And so this morning, we're going to be reading Daniel chapter 8, but I'm not going to do it solo. We don't want that. So I'm going to invite Josie and Aaron up to read Daniel chapter 8 with me.
1: In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great.
2: As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and to the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground.
1: Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice? The rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated.
0: While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, Tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet.
1: He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power.
2: In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future.
0: I, Daniel, was worn out. I, was, I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding.
3: Well, let us pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your scriptures, uh, for what has been read, um, and we confess uh, difficult to understand, and we sympathize with Daniel and his perplexity and also his sense of anguish and uh, how appalled he was at what he heard. We pray now as we uh, work our way through this chapter that you, your spirit, would be with us to give us understanding um, and that uh, through this, we would see you and see the Lord Jesus Christ and see the light that comes after the darkness. So we ask you to be with us and move through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hear that this afternoon on TV, uh, there will be an interesting nature documentary, a wildlife program about tigers and rams. Um But I am a little puzzled. Um, Tigers are solitary animals, and uh, they don't hunt together like lions do. Uh, But they do go after goats. I'm not sure about rams. Um, But the easiest way to catch a tiger is actually not by its tail, but um, with a a goat, uh, especially one tied to a tree. And then the goat is no match for the tiger, and the tiger is no match for the man hiding up the tree. And then, as for the rams, well, uh, the rams tend to fight each other, for the ladies, so I'm not sure how well they would cooperate with each other, Uh, too many macho rams together, uh, to actually go after the tigers, rather than after each other. But uh, I do like nature documentaries, so I'm intrigued to watch this one. (laughs) But, uh, oh, I see I've got the wrong end of the stick, so... We turned the stick around, and the penny just dropped. Uh, The Tigers and the Rams are not real Tigers and Rams at all. They're only two football teams, the Cincinnati Bengals and the Los Angeles Rams facing off in the Super Bowl this afternoon. Well, it's not my cup of tea, but I'm delighted that many of you are going to watch this and many others uh, throughout the Bay Area because that makes it the best day to go for a bike ride all year. But uh, I have been watching uh, the rugby. Uh, The Six Nations, annual Six Nations Championship kicked off last weekend. Uh, Scotland beat England, which is always the most important thing. And uh, if you know anything about rugby, or this applies to Premier League soccer as well, you go to the game not just to watch the match, but to sing. So what do you sing? Well, the Scottish fans sing, Oh Flower of Scotland. Which is so popular that it's Scotland's unofficial national anthem. You're like, oh, Flower of Scotland, what a wimpy image. It's not like the lions or the bears. Um, but Scottish, English, and Irish rugby all use a flower as their image the thistle, the rose, and the shamrock. And so the Scottish thistle defeated the English rose. Not the thistles defeated the roses, no, the singular flower stands for the country. So it wasn't just the Scottish rugby team that defeated the English rugby team. Scotland defeated England. The thistle defeated the rose. And then yesterday, Scotland played Wales, whose national flower is the daffodil. And so some of the Welsh fans dressed up as daffodils. And if you had been there, you would have, why are they dressed as daffodils? But for them, the daffodil was Wales, and it was everything Welshness. Now, when the Scots sing O Flower of Scotland, they're not actually thinking about a flower at all, even though most of them have a thistle somewhere on the clothing or painted on their face. No, the flower of Scotland is actually people. And the song evokes a powerful memory from long ago history of those who rose up and defeated the English in the Battle of Bannockburn, which is now popularized by uh, the movie Braveheart. And may the same happen today. Uh, for the current, with the current flower of Scotland, it's Rugby Team. Well, as I'm preaching through Daniel, and as our women are studying Revelation, I know that some of you are struggling with the concept of metaphor, and you're used to reading the text literally, and I know that some of you are disturbed by the fact that I am not reading it literally. But what is a literal reading? Well, as I hope you've seen for the last few minutes, um, When metaphors are involved, a literal reading is usually the farthest thing from the truth and from the intended meaning. We all use metaphors and other figures of speech in our everyday communication. Metaphors can't just mean anything. We can't make up a meaning for them. Metaphors work because of a shared culture. And we navigate them automatically when we are communicating within a culture. But if we're communicating cross-culturally, we are easily baffled by metaphors, as you would be (laughs) seeing people dressed up as daffodils. Metaphors and images are even more common in dreams, and both Daniel and Revelation consist primarily of dreams or visions. Indeed, in Revelation, the primary narrative is, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, 45 times. And four times, John was in the spirit in which visionary state he was shown things. And the source book for most of the metaphors in Revelation is not 21st century America, but the Old Testament, which often we just don't know well enough to be able to discern the metaphors. And biblical interpretation has been dominated by white Western males who read the Bible within a particular culture. So, just one example from Revelation chapter 9. At the opening of the fifth and the sixth seals, a swarm of locusts emerges from the abyss, and an enormous army of mounted warriors crosses the Euphrates from the east. Now, many American readers, who are most insistent that they are reading literally, think that what John sees represents modern or even future military hardware, helicopter gunships, even nuclear war. But if you were to talk to someone from Africa, then an enormous swarm of locusts is still a very vivid image for them of total destruction. They've experienced swarms of locusts, and a student of history is familiar with the many times that vast hordes of mounted horsemen came charging across the Euphrates River, again and again and again. So these are living realities still. And furthermore, focusing on modern military hardware feeds a fascination with militarism, that is actually really rather dissonant with the message of Revelation. Well, fortunately, we're now hearing more voices from different cultures, from women, from scholars in the two thirds world, from social and cultural anthropologists, and they all read images and metaphors quite differently and can help us in our reading. Now, when it comes to Daniel, in the first half of Daniel, Uh, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar had two vivid dreams at night. And this was expected of a king, that he had visions. What is not expected is that the king know the meaning of the dream. It wasn't expected that there was a plain literal meaning that could be discerned straight away. Instead, the king employed magicians. Uh, This was true of Nebuchadnezzar. This was true also of Pharaoh in Egypt in the time of Joseph. Today, one might see the God a psychoanalyst to interpret dreams or nightmares. The court magicians were unable to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but God gave Daniel the ability to do so. And now in the second half of the book, it is Daniel who has visions. He has four visions and he cannot interpret his own visions. So again, there isn't a plain literal meaning that he can immediately discern. And instead, it is heavenly angels who interpret the meaning for him. So today, we come to the second of these visions. And it uh, occurs to him two years after the first one, as we read in chapter 8, verse 1. And he receives it in the third year of King Belshazzar, who is the last king of the Babylonian Empire. So he receives this vision around about the year 550 B.C., and in his vision, he is transported to Susa, which is about 200 kilometers east of Babylon and would become the, the capital city of the vast Persian Empire, the next empire after the Babylonian one. And his vision is action-packed. It contains a ram, that's a male sheep. It contains a, a goat, um, a male goat specifically, and lots of horns, eight of them. Now, sheep and goats are both domesticated animals, not like the wild animals of the previous vision in chapter 7. Females are docile, but not the males. They're macho. They can have impressive horns, which they use against competing males. And throughout the Bible and the ancient world, horns represent power, both physical strength but also authority and rule. They are symbolic. Now, first, Daniel sees a two-horned ram, a male sheep. And if you drive a Dodge Ram truck, then you're very familiar with the image of the massive horns of a big horned sheep. That's the logo. Uh, And in Daniel's case, one horn is longer uh, and came up later than the other in his vision. Now, this is contrary to nature, uh, but it's a vision and such things happen in visions. Now the ram charges forth from Susa, and it charges towards the west and the north and the south, and it overwhelms everything in its path. No animal can stand in its way, and there is none to rescue. The ram accomplishes its plan and becomes great. Next, a goat. Now, we're not talking cute pygmy goats in pajamas, um, but a male goat with horns, serious horns. Um, Actually, it's just one horn, which again is unnatural. But again, this is a vision. So such things happen. And this goat comes charging from the opposite direction, from the west. And at top speed, it charges into the ram, shattering its two horns, knocking it to the ground and trampling it underfoot. The tables are turned now. Now it is the ram's turn to have none to rescue it, and the goat becomes very great. And then at the height of the goat's power, an unexpected thing happens. Its horn is broken off. We're not told by whom, but God is implied. And in its place grow four horns towards the four winds of heaven, or we would say the four points of the compass. Now, thus far, the vision has been vivid and action-packed. But the ram, the goat, and the seven horns so far are not the focus of the vision. This is all just the prelude. Before we move on to the main part of the vision, let me give the interpretation of these elements, because it's all symbolic. We have metaphor here. And the interpretation is supplied by the angel Gabriel later in the chapter. And for these elements so far, he is very brief. It's just 30 words in Hebrew, but this covers 370 years of history. So it helps to know a little bit about the history of that period. Well, the two-horned ram, we're told, represents the kings of Media and Persia, there in verse 20. Now, the Median Empire was a large empire, and, but then in the... Uh, Around about the year 559, King Cyrus rose up in Persia. He was actually the grandson of the uh, king of Media. And he rebelled against his grandfather and overthrew him in the year 550. So this perhaps explains why this vision occurs in this particular year, the third year of King Belshazzar. This is around about the time that Cyrus overthrew his grandfather. and. Uh, established the Persian Empire. So Persia is the younger and the longer horn in this conjoining of Media and Persia. And under Cyrus the Great and Darius the Great, the Persian Empire grew very large, reaching all the way to the edge of Greece. And twice, Persia attempted unsuccessfully to conquer Greece, first under Darius, that's when the Battle of Marathon happened, and then under Xerxes. That's when the Battle of Thermopylae happened, made famous by the Stand of the 300, uh, popularized in the movie of that name. Then the goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn, we're told, is its first king, verse 21. So now we've suddenly jumped to 150 years. Uh, This is Alexander the Great, uh, who came to power in 336. And uh, 150 years after Darius and Xerxes had attempted to invade Greece, he burst out of Greece. And in just three years, he conquered the entire Persian empire, thus avenging for Persia's invasions. And he built an enormous empire, the largest one yet. But Alexander died suddenly in his prime in Babylon in the year 323 without a designated heir. And for the next 50 years, his generals fought each other as they attempted to carve out their own mini-empires. Now, these are the four horns, which we're told represent four kingdoms in verse 22. Four kingdoms, not a sequence of four kingdoms, as in chapter 7, but four kingdoms concurrently at the same time. And some here would see literally four kingdoms, that I prefer to read the numbers symbolically because there were actually more than four generals who were fighting each other to carve out these little mini empires. Sometimes there were five, sometimes four, sometimes three. Sometimes they ganged up on others, and so on. So it was a very messy 50 years. But each of these little empires was smaller than Alexander's vast empire. None had his same power. And by the end of those 50 years, Two of these empires dominated the Near East, the Seleucid Empire in the north and the east, and the Ptolemaic Empire down in Egypt. And Jerusalem is caught between these two empires. And we'll hear a lot more about these empires in Jerusalem in chapter 11. So the vision and its interpretation thus far have swept through many centuries, but now the pace slows down the remainder of the vision covers less than seven years. And the focus is on another horn that emerges from one of the four. And the vision first portrays the rapid growth of this little horn. In verse 9, Out of one of them came another horn which started small, but it grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, this little horn is not specifically interpreted, but there is agreement that this is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. In the year 175 BC, he seized the throne of the Seleucid Empire through nefarious means. And starting small, he sought greatness. And there's an ominous progression throughout the vision. The ram rapidly built a large empire, and it became great. The goat even more rapidly built an even larger empire, it became very great. They both built earthly empires. The little horn grew to the south and to the east and to the beautiful land, which is the land of Israel, and more specifically Jerusalem. And its empire on earth was not as large as the rams or the goats but the little horn had other aspirations for greatness. It continued growing and it grew as far as the host of heaven and still further as far as the commander of the host, God himself. The little horn expanded vertically in an assault on heaven. Antiochus attempted to become God. And the vision continues with the actions taken by the little horn in its assault on heaven. Halfway through verse uh, 11, it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything that it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Here ends the vision. What a dark ending. The little horn has assaulted the Lord, his temple, and his people. It has accomplished everything it set out to do. So, where is the light at the end of the tunnel? Is there anyone to deliver? Well, next, Daniel hears a conversation between two holy ones in verse 12 and 13, presumably two angels in heaven. And one asked the other, sorry, verse 13. How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? And then the answer, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. How long? One of the most common questions in Scripture How long? And a commonly asked question today. How long, we all ask. How long is this pandemic going to go on? Um, We're excited that California is going to lift its mask mandate on uh, Tuesday at midnight, but not Santa Clara County. So how much longer for Santa Clara County? How long, how long? Is there an end? We want to know. That's what Daniel wants to know. Is there an end to this darkness? And the angel singles out four items in the vision. The daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. How long will these four things carry on, persist? And the daily sacrifice is what's called the tamid offering, the Continual burnt offering of the lamb every single morning and every single evening that had gone on ever since the tabernacle was constructed a thousand years or more earlier. But the little horn has taken this away. The sanctuary is the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, overthrown by the little horn. And the daily sacrifice, the sanctuary, and the Lord's people have been handed over to the little horn because of rebellion. Whose rebellion? Well, sadly, it's the rebellion of the Lord's own people against him. And it is the Lord who has handed them over into the oppressor's power because of their unfaithfulness. And this is the wrath, God's judgment upon his own people for their breaking of covenant. So in the year 167 BC, Antiochus, the emperor ruler of the Seleucid Empire, acted against the Jews in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, in the temple, he set up a statue of Zeus. He desecrated the altar of burnt offering with unclean animals. He stopped the twice-daily sacrifice. He outlawed all the ordained customs of the Jews, circumcision, Sabbath observance, Torah, commanded the destruction of all the Torah scrolls. It was cultural genocide. And many Jews were killed. And then Antiochus called himself Epiphanes, God manifest. He proclaimed and presented himself to the world as God manifest on earth. And this was all a desolation, an abomination. But what precipitated this abomination was actually the rebellion of God's own people. So, how long will this desolation, this abomination, this last? asked the angel. 2,300 evenings and mornings. But what does this mean? Does an evening and a morning count as one or two? Is it 2,300 days or 1,150 days? Is it a little over six years or is it a little over three years? And those who want to read the number literally cannot agree. And those who want to read the number, the 2,300 symbolically, also can't agree with each other. So perhaps we have to be content not knowing in full. And accept that it is a a significant number, period of time, but a finite period of time. Now, three times Daniel is told that his vision concerns distant events. Verse 17, the time of the end. Verse 19, the appointed time of the end. Verse 26, the distant future, literally many days. So it's clear that the distant days will be dark indeed. And Daniel could have tried to put this all out of his mind Knowing that he would be long dead before the vision be fulfilled. He does get up and go about the king's business, but he identifies emotionally with the horror of the vision. In the last verse there, 27, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. I was appalled by the vision, it was beyond understanding. So poor Daniel, I need to give a thought, spare a thought for him. It has been traumatic for him receiving these visions. So in the previous chapter, the visions left him troubled in spirit and disturbed, and then the interpretation was even worse. It left him deeply troubled and ashen-faced. But there are two small notes of hope. The sanctuary will be reconsecrated after those 2,300 days, and he, that is the little horn, will be destroyed, but not by human power. nothing further is said just a little glimmer of hope but the presumption is that god himself will be the agent of the little horn's destruction and this will have to be enough for daniel to hold on to and it will have to be enough for the faithful jews in jerusalem to hold on to centuries later during that persecution by antiochus you see the book of daniel is resistance literature The stories of Daniel and of his three friends in the first half of the book, resisting the blasphemous edicts of the kings in Babylon, inspire others to resist also. The visions of horrific beastly empires and of targeted attacks on God's faithful people inspire future generations to see the beasts for what they are. They're imposters. Even the little horn, especially the little horn. And to remain faithful to the one true God. Then the little horn makes an assault on heaven, setting itself up as God. And this is the vision of every emperor, to be God. This was true of Pharaoh, of Nebuchadnezzar, of Antiochus, of various Caesars. This is true of Antichrist, whether of John's letters or the man of lawlessness for Second Thessalonians 2. This assault on heaven is a major part of the dynamic of the book of Revelation. The dragon has placed the beast on the throne. and The false prophet orchestrates humanity to worship the beast. And Revelation is also resistance literature. It unmasks the beast for what it really is, one not worthy of worship. And it inspires the Christians to remain faithful, loyal, and devoted to to the lamb whom they follow he is worthy of their worship and he is worthy of our worship now isaiah penned a poem about the king of babylon isaiah chapter 14 how you have fallen from heaven morning star son of the dawn you have been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Siphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I will ascend to the heavens. I will make myself like the Most High. Just like Antiochus. And the poem here alludes to the morning star, sun of the dawn, which is Venus. And Venus is uh, currently visible in the pre-dawn sky. Uh, comes up somewhere a little bit after 5. Uh, and it's the brightest object in the sky, uh, 25 times brighter than Sirius, which is the brightest star. Um, and I've been out the past few mornings to look at it. Uh, it is a stunning sight. Uh, blazing in the darkness. And then even well into dawn, when the sun is quite bright, Venus is still visible. But then the sun comes up. Venus disappears. It is outshone. And the Hebrew word here that's translated as sun of the dawn, uh, or uh, yeah, um, as morning star, is "helal," uh, meaning a shining object in the sky. And it was translated into Latin as Lucifer, which is a perfectly good translation because it means light bearer. Along the way, Lucifer was capitalized, and so Lucifer got into the Bible. Uh, but Lucifer, as a proper name, is not actually in the text. Um, but the poem does expose Satan's desire to shine as brightly as God, indeed, to supplant God. This is diabolical. The darkest hour is just before dawn. But some faithful Jews at the time of Antiochus refused to comply with his orders. They started the Maccabean revolt, and three years later they captured the temple and rededicated it, commemorated ever since in Hanukkah, which means dedication. But then they corrupted themselves with power. They built an empire. They killed many of their own people, fellow Jews. They succumbed to the darkness. So where then is the sun that dispels the darkness? Well, God's answer to the assault on heaven is not to respond with overwhelming power, but ultimately to send his beloved into the world. And his beloved did the opposite. He gave up his privileged position in the Father's embrace. He humbled himself, made himself nothing, took on the form of a human, even of a servant. As we read in John's prologue, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it here, has not grasped it, as could be the darkness has not understood it, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. As we sing in the ancient hymn, Let all mortal flesh, Light of light to earth descending from the realm of endless day. But the world preferred to live in darkness. It put out the light. The Jewish leaders collaborated with the Roman authorities to put to death this one who was a threat to their power. And this was the darkest hour of all. Jesus died and was placed in the grave. But this was also the finest hour because a human being had been faithfully obedient to God to the very end. It absorbed the very worst of evil, but remained faithful. Now, it's customary to think that God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross. I think the opposite is true, actually, that the Father was beaming on his Son with infinite pleasure as Jesus forgave those who did him evil, committed his spirit into his Father's hands, and said, It is finished. but no one else knew that it was the finest hour. The disciples thought that it was the darkest hour. The Jewish leaders were micromanaging the situation. The Romans, it was just another day disposing of troublesome revolutionaries. But God knew it was the finest hour. Now, most of us go through dark times, Perhaps your darkness is the never-ending pandemic. How long? Or perhaps it's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Or worry and anxiety about kids, about employment, about health, about old age. So how do we respond in our darknesses? At the end of Romans 12, which uh, the men studied just a week or two ago, Paul writes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how would we do this? In our darkness, not to succumb and get sucked further into the darkness, but to overcome the darkness with light, with truth, to find hope. Well, we do it by looking to Jesus and praying for God's Spirit to work in us so that we can respond to darkness with love with kindness, with gentleness, with the fruit of the Spirit. So that then the darkest hour can become our finest hour. Not by the removing of the darkness, but by God in Christ through His Spirit giving us the grace to respond in that darkness in a way that defeats the darkness. But which Jesus do we look to? As I said last week, uh, with reference to um, Mars Hill Church, I'm uh, not sure that looking to Jesus, the mighty warrior on the horse, the symbol of power and strength, is the right one. Instead, one of the most powerful, most potent symbols of Jesus is the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. It's an ancient symbol. It goes back uh, more than, well over 1,000 years, more like 1,500 years. It's rich in meaning. There's a lot here in this image. And it is the antithesis of the beasts, of the ram and the goats and all the horns. It has no horns. Instead, it has a wound. There's a lamb standing as though slain, its breast pierced by the cross. But from that cross flies the banner of Resurrection. Red cross on a white background. And behind the head is the halo, filled with yellow, indicating divinity, deity. And in that is also the red cross of resurrection. The lamb that was slain, but it's risen. And in our window, it is atop the cross facing the lion. The lion has conquered not with power, but by being the slain lamb. And we are called to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And it's this vision of this Jesus that will enable us to respond to darkness with light. And in our dark places, to make those dark times our finest hours. So our lamb has conquered Let us follow him. And now, receive this prayer. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given himself for us, and the love of God, and the fellowship, the participation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, be with us all now and evermore. Amen.